Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. This is the biggest transformation in the economy since the Industrial Revolution. Now, there were people who pretended the Industrial Revolution could be ignored and it would have no impact on workers. They weren't proven right by history. And anybody who goes around Queensland and says, ah, you know, climate change, you know, it's all going to come and take your job, we can just basically ignore it. They are being fundamentally dishonest. Welcome, lovely people of podcasts, to another episode of the show. You are with Catherine Murphy, the host and political editor of Guardian Australia. With me is a friend of the podcast. He's been on a few times. True. <laughs> Remotely from Sydney. You're at home, Chris, right? I'm at home in Smithfield in uh, the great western west of, Sydney. West of Sydney, yes, uh, is Chris Bowen. He is the Shadow Minister for Climate Change and Energy. We've been wanting to have a conversation for a little bit just around labour and climate and energy policy, obviously after Chris's change into this really important portfolio. And I want to start slightly at a helicopter level if we can, because I've just recently finished reading Alan Finkel's quarterly essay. I don't know if you've got to that yet, Chris, or not, but it's basically about the pathway to net zero. So, and, and when I say I want to start a bit at a helicopter level, I'll just, let's open this way. So Labor's policy is to hit net zero emissions by 2050. You've, you have signed up to that undertaking. Conceptually, how do we get there? Well, we get there by a continuation of what we're doing, but in a more ambitious fashion. So we get there by looking at the economy sectorally. So breaking it down to transport, industry, agriculture, and having a range of policy mechanisms. We've announced a couple, but there's a long way to go. But basically, I see it this way, to take the helicopter view, as you put it, Catherine, basically, we have to electrify everything, almost everything. Anything that can be electrified, we have to electrify. So transport, home heating, etc. And we have to decarbonise the generation of electricity. They're the two things that we mm -hmm. have to do. And Doing one of them won't, won't cut it. We've got to do both. So, as I said, electric vehicles, home heating, and then a strong transition to a more renewable economy as well. Now, I'm sure we'll get to it, but I see that not as so much a challenge, but as an enormous opportunity for the country. There's going to be an enormous amount of investment required to do that, an enormous number of jobs created. And that's just before, that before we even get to Part of that electrifying everything and trans transitioning to more renewables is a massive upgrade of the grid. We've got to 
massively upgrade mm. our transmission lines because you could put a solar panel on every patch of the desert. But unless there's very significantly improved transmission lines to get that energy into the cities where it's by and large mainly consumed, it's not going to do the job. So I see all that as a very significant economic opportunity. Mm. And, and electrification sort of is at the root of it. But what that means, if we sort of take Finkel's essay as a starting point, and he puts it through, he also speaks about this transition through the lenses of opportunity, as you do, right? But he basically says what you've said, in essence, that it'll require significant new investments solar, in solar, wind and hydro, as well as storage and transmission. All of that's pretty obvious, right? Yep. But we've been through, because of the the tedious and well, completely destructive climate wars of the past decade, we've got mechanism fatigue <laughs> right in the system. We've had carbon pricing. We've had renewable energy target. Uh, Finkel himself recommended a clean energy target that lived for about five minutes before the Morrison government killed it. We've had the National Energy Guarantee, right? This is a sort of a preface to ask again a helicopter question, We've sort of moved into a period in climate and energy policy where it's now it's about subsidies and roadmaps and and this sort of stuff. Do you still think that we need a policy mechanism or mechanisms in order to achieve this transition rather than I mean, I would say derisively picking winners or this, this may seem a bit mad, Chris, but go with me on this walk. It's sort of like, do you think that there needs to be a policy mechanism and or mechanisms in order to make this transition to full electrification? Oh, yeah, we, we do. We need, I would put it in the mechanisms. So if I, if I interpreting your, your question correctly, and I might, I may or may not be Catherine, but I think you're sort of getting at, do we need one sort of economy-wide carbon price or do we need sectoral yeah. interventions? And I think we need sectoral interventions. So we need to mm. incentivise the use of electric vehicles, for example, where we're way behind the game, way, way behind the game. We're ahead of the game on solar, rooftop solar panels. That's mainly thanks to Australian households, not the federal government. You know, we are many multiples ahead of um, our comparable countries when it comes to rooftop solar. That's Australian families making the decision because it makes economic sense for them as well as being good for the environment, right? Now, that requires some management in terms of managing the grid um, and ensuring reliability and stability going forward. But, you know, that's a policy mechanism. That's one policy mechanism. We'll need policy mechanisms in transport. We've announced a couple and we're going to need to do more in relation to transport policy mechanisms and we're working on that. My view very strongly is that agriculture must be included in the drive towards net zero and not only do I think that, the key representatives of farmers think that and every farmer I've spoken to thinks that too because they don't want to miss out on the opportunities. So you can't just let it rip. You've got to have the policy mechanisms in place. I, I, I don't think it's picking winners. You could accuse us of that, I guess. But, you know, are we picking electric vehicles as a winner or, or hydrogen and plug-in hydrogen? Well, to agree, I, I guess so. But that's an appropriate choice to make. We, mm. we won't, you know, tell people which sort of car that they're driving, which is driven by renewable energy to choose, but we want to incentivise that choice. So to a degree, that is picking winners in that sense. But I think that's that's a legitimate and a and necessary policy mechanism to go down. So I don't think, again, perhaps loop back to where we started, I don't think it's one sort of magic solution economy-wide mechanism. Obviously, the net zero ambition uh, is economy-wide, but we're going to need a multi-pronged effort to get there. 
Mm. And we'll go, I want to get into your electric, what you've announced on electric vehicles and a couple of other things in a minute. But sort of sitting adjacent to the mechanism fatigue, do we have mechanism fatigue? Uh, yeah. Question sits the perennial question about targets. Now, I open with the main one, the, the mid-century target that Labor has already signed up to, which is net zero by 2050. Now, what happens in the medium term? Is Labor prepared to accept or articulate targets for 2030, 2035, 2040? Like, how are you going to approach this? Because this was a key flashpoint that, in a way, precipitated uh, you landing in this portfolio. It was the issue of the medium-term emissions reduction target. Where have you landed on that, Chris, or is that still in transition? Well, transition to coin a term. Transition. Uh, we are. Cer- I'm certainly going to be laying out on behalf of the Labor Party the roadmap to 2050. So, as I said in my uh, speech at national conference a couple of weeks ago, net, net zero emissions by 2050 does not mean we start in 2048. You know, it, it does not mean that. It means we start now. And indeed, as the old saying goes, the best time to start was 30 years ago, and the second best time is today, and the worst time is 2048 or 2049. So. We'll be laying out that pathway towards 2050. Now, I'm not yet announcing, you know, what that looks like in 2030 or 2035 or etc. But it'll be there, and that roadmap will very clearly be there, both in, in terms of the, the pathway to get to 2050, and it'll be the policy mechanisms and what that means in terms of our emissions. And that'll all be laid out. We're working away on that. So while I'm not, you know, announcing that today I am saying very clearly to you that net zero by 2050 is absolutely necessary but also not sufficient. I agree with you, if if you are putting a view to me, uh, that the Mm. roadmap has to be very clear. Mm. And uh, and so we've gone from a target to a roadmap, which you know is it could easily be a, a distinction without a difference, right? I'm just using a different word to you. Mm. But in your roadmap, there will be emissions reduction targets set out sequentially between now and 2050, including those in the medium term. Well, look, I'm not going to get hung up on the semantics of language. I think you are correct to say, you know, we're really essentially saying very similar things. Um, the language mm. that I end up using will be clear when Anthony and I make the announcement. But I'm giving you a very sort of clear indication as a matter of principle, mm. an important one, that nobody will be in any doubt as to how we get to net zero by 2050 under a Labor government, you know, and and nobody will be able to assert, oh, you know, you're just putting it all off until 2048 or 2049. I'm not suggesting everybody's going to read our policy and say, well, that's, you know, that's perfect because you can't do that in climate change. You're, all, you're, going to, you're going to be annoying people on either side of the debate, but it'll be a serious roadmap guided by all the evidence and indications as to what Australia needs to do. And as I've said repeatedly, I know this is not quite on message for your question, but it's an important one with jobs and economic growth at the centre of that mm-hmm. policy as well. I want to come back to the economics of climate change, which I think we both agree is actually critically important. Um, But just one more thing before we depart mechanisms, and I want to get to electric vehicles in a minute. I raised the clean energy target, not because I think that was a perfect policy, but just again with Finkel's essay in my mind. I think he makes a calculation that just the bringing on of of new uh, generation capacity into the grid... um, 
in order to meet that transition to net zero. I think he says it would require 460 additional gigawatts of capacity, which is a replacement of 18 gigawatts annually into the grid, right? This is new solar, wind, pumped hydro, whatever whatever you like, storage, right? The renewable energy target's done. It's finished. It's, it's, it's winding down. But that sort of capacity building in the system, to me, speaks to a need for some other mechanism to to pull forward the required technology. What do you think about that, Chris? I mean, because I'm a bit iffy about RETs without carbon prices, but I understand that we're so far away from the carbon price landing point now, it's, it's, it's just even ridiculous yeah. almost to have the conversation, sadly. But do you think something like that will be required, some sort of pull-forward mechanism? Well, I agree with you that there's mechanism fatigue. There's no doubt about that. And, you know, I would blame the incumbent government uh, very much for that mechanism fatigue because many of those mechanisms have been proposed by them and failed under them due to their own intern- the internal weight of their own disagreements. The NEG, for example, was one where we said, as the opposition, we wouldn't have done it, we wouldn't design it that way, but, hey, it's the closest thing we've got to a sensible mechanism and any hope of bipartisanship, so we'll engage with it. But it wasn't us who killed the NEG, it was the right wing of the Liberal Party when Josh Frydenberg was uh, energy minister. Now, but I, I guess, again, I'd make the point that, yes, we're going to need mechanisms, but sectoral ones. So, yes, Alan is right to point to the need to generate much more electricity, and then, of course, to generate more as well, because if you take the natural conclusion of what I said in my first answer, we're going to need to electrify everything and generate a lot more electricity. That means we are going to need to generate a lot more electricity. But if you take, for example, what's already happening in Australia, um, as I said before, mainly driven by households, the amount of rooftop solar in Australia at the moment is equivalent to about four power stations, you know, four, mm. say, take a Raring power station. It's equivalent to four of those already, and it's increasing exponentially. And some analysts say that by 2025, we'll reach the same capacity as all our coal-fired power stations just on rooftop solar. You know, So mm. that is happening now. Yes, that requires management and there's more to be done and you know, storage becomes a particular uh, challenge. Yeah, and rural changes into the grid. Yeah, all that yeah. stuff needs yeah. to be managed. And hence the need. Again, again, I, I see. I know I just called it a challenge, but I actually see it mainly as an opportunity because that storage which needs to be created will cre- will require a lot of investment and create a lot of jobs, and it'll be in many senses an almost all the above approach. So we're going to need batteries. We're going to need batteries in homes. We're going to need grid scale batteries. We're going to need community batteries, which was our announcement the mm. other day. Uh, but batteries alone won't be enough because batteries have limited storage capacity over a longer period of time. So we're going to need pumped hydro. And I'm quite confident we're going to need and we'll have hydrogen as well. All these are, are big opportunities and there will need to be policy mechanisms, not only just on the generation side, but on the storage side as well. But I think mm. they've got to be carefully designed ones and specific ones. Mm, that storage mechanism's an intriguing thought. Let's think about your electric vehicles policy or a down payment on your electric vehicles policy, which was unveiled at Labor's national conference. Now, you've basically signalled that you'll remove the tariff on imported vehicles and and that should have a price impact, that should have a positive price impact, i.e. electric vehicles should be a bit cheaper yep. uh, if you 
removed the current arrangements. But then how do you make sure that that price benefit flows through to the consumer? Like a government can remove a tariff, that's all, all, that's all well and good, but how do you make sure that that price advantage flows through the supply chain? Well, firstly, we've announced two things, basically, in relation to electric vehicles. You're right, we've announced taking the tariff off the electric vehicles at the lower, the more affordable end of the market, below the luxury car mm. tax threshold. Now, again, I'm not going to pretend that that in and of itself is, you know, a magic bullet, but I know that when people, including, you know, younger people are looking at what cars to buy, the difference of a couple of grand does make a difference as to what car mm. uh, they will choose. So if you look at a $50,000 electric vehicle, say a Nissan Leaf, that reduces the price by about 2000 And then the FPT. Now, half our car purchases in Australia are fleet purchases, mm. so they're bought by big fleets. And there's no FPT concession at the moment for an electric vehicle. You get one if you give your employee a ute or a panel van, but not if you yep. give them an electric vehicle. Now, that's actually a bigger impact in terms of cost. That'll reduce cost of electric vehicles by several thousand, you know, up to 10,000, mm-hmm. you know, depending on the cost of the car. So that will drive consumption. Now, how do you ensure it's passed? Oh, look, I, I'm very confident the, the consumers will demand it be passed on. Uh, you've got all mm-hmm. the normal mechanisms, the ACCC and all that sort of stuff. But actually, I think if people don't see the prices come down when the tariff comes off, there'll be the, the market will determine who gets rewarded and who gets punished for that. And it'll become a very... EV markets are very competitive around the world, but not in Australia. I mean, the manufacturers, Mm. some manufacturers more than others, but basically the the manufacturers are really striving for EV markets around the world. But in Australia, they've been very clear to me, saying we're not going to strive for the Australian EV market until the policy mechanisms are there to make that a sensible, reasonable proposition for us to sell to our boardrooms in you know, Detroit and Tokyo and and Berlin. They're not going to do that. So the policy mechanism, again, to go back to your question, is vital when it comes to electric vehicles. I mean, there's a reason we're only 0.7% when other countries are 4 and 5% and in some cases mm. more. Now, more. yes, Australia's mm. different because we tend to tra- travel longer distances, so range anxiety becomes a bigger issue. Uh, you know, people concerned, can the electric vehicle get me to where I need to go? But again... There are policy solutions to that, and already in the last couple of years, from the you know the time where Scott Morrison and Michaela Cash could declare the death of the weekend, already people are, are having that range anxiety dealt with, and there's more that can be done. Are there more mechanisms other than the ones you've foreshadowed? to reduce the price of an electric vehicle because that is that is one of the key drivers of take up it's one uh, of them along with what along with what you're talking about which is do manufacturers actually focus on the australian market because the policy settings are right and we'll come back to that in a tick yeah. but yeah they're yeah. expensive um, i think there are three mechanisms or th- three things really which drive it it's cost or price it's range anxiety and it's those policy settings to encourage manufacturers they're the three sort of big spaces that we have to deal with and yes cost is the first one that we've tackled and yes this is our policy offering on cost this is the part of it we, i've mm-hmm. said that we will announce an electric vehicle strategy a national electric vehicle strategy and the two tax cuts that we announced are the cost part of that electric vehicle strategy mm-hmm. and you know, we're mm-hmm. looking at the other things which need to go into the electric vehicle strategy just like solar the cost of solar panels coming down you know 90 percent in 10 years the cost of electric vehicles is going to come down as well. Oh, the market. Our policy is designed to help that yeah. along the way, 
and provide that, yes. you know, that spur, particularly while that's happening. But inevitably, the cost of electric vehicles is going to become more competitive. Our policy is designed mm. to add to that and to spur it and to help it. Yeah. And in terms of the broader strategy, now at the last federal election, Labor had vehicle emission standards. It also had a take-up target. I can't remember exactly what it was, but X percent of the fleet by X date. A vehicle emission standard still on the table. We are considering all the other elements that need to go into the electric vehicle strategy. So I've not made a determination about what policy we'd settle on there. That's a it's, Frankly, it's a pretty complicated area. I've met with the manufacturers, I've met with the automobile associations, I've, I've been looking at it, but, we'll, but I've yet to reach a policy recommendation to the Shadow Cabinet. But we will have, as I said, a, an electric vehicle strategy and it will have other elements over and above the cost element. What about in some jurisdictions there's, you know, prohibition of sales of, you know, internal combustion petrol, diesel vehicles by X date, is that something you would consider? No, that's not on my policy agenda. The UK and other countries are heading down that road. I don't think we're there. You know, I don't think you can go from zero to hero, you know, from 0.7% of sales to banning internal combustion engines. I mean, that will have an impact on Australia, even without Australian policy, as, as other countries do that, including countries where cars are manufactured. That'll have an impact on cars that are available in Australia. I'm focusing more on those areas which help consumers who want to choose electric vehicles. It's tremendous about choice in many senses, at least in the first phases, giving people better choices. I know people who would love to have an electric vehicle but can't afford one, right? Or would really be interested in an electric vehicle if they could be satisfied on range anxiety. So we've got to do that, go back to those three areas and get those right to enable that greater choice. Uh, do you think that um, just on the range anxiety point, which is where the coalition was in the last election with the war on the weekend, where do you think the Australian consumer is at? Because they clearly uh, sort of ran that campaign against your policy at that time because they felt that that worked with certain voting co cohorts and in certain parts of the country. That's why they did it. So do you think consumer sentiment has shifted since the last election or not? Yeah, I think there's been some shift. You, you obviously, like, well, you clearly, like, Chris, won't answer the question about whether vehicle emission standard is, uh, is still on the table or not, right? And that's the hottest area of the policy from the point of view of the stakeholders or has... It's not that I won't answer it. I've answered it by saying I'm still looking at it. So that's a slight, yeah, slight exactly. nuance. <laughs> but... well, <laughs> well, yes, yes, but I'm not really the wiser about whether it's the answer will be yes or no. But anyway, that, putting that to one side, the, the question's a genuine one. Where mm. do you think the Australian consumer is at? I, I think there has been some change. Inevitably in this space, you know, as people just see more and more electric vehicles on the road and, and drive them and experience them, you know, maybe when they pick up a, a renter car for a holiday or, you know, just see one passing them on the street. I mean, a lot of them have got, they've got get up and go. I've, I've driven them, I can tell you. You put your foot down and an electric vehicle goes and it can pull, you know, a, a boat. Uh, it can pull a caravan. It can get you from... Sydney to Melbourne, um, you know, if you've planned out your trip, you know, you can do all those things. So I think inevitably that will happen. Also, part, yeah, you're right, part of the policy is we said we'd have a, a national target, like not just the government fleet, but a national target of take-up yeah. of electric vehicles. We're not doing that this time, frankly, because the government 
in their you know nefarious uh, dishonest ways painted that as a mandate when it was never designed to be that it was never going to be that it was, it was painted as going to be compulsory it was never going to be that and i'm not going to let scott morrison make that assertion again it's about choice it's about mm. making electric vehicles more competitive and giving people whom as i said you know plenty of people out there like the idea or at least open to the conversation you know if they could take it for a test drive and be convinced but that they just can't afford at the moment or they're worried about the range. So all the manufacturers aren't bringing them here in, in the way that we need. All those things need to happen. What about uh, you, you, you flagged hydrogen a minute ago and hydrogen's going to be pretty important to as a sort of replacement export energy industry for a country like Australia that is so exposed to heavily carbonised you know, sectors for export income, right? So I, re- I read somewhere that in the green recovery after the after COVID, a lot of countries spending a lot of money in a in a green recovery. In this same study, Australia came at the bottom of the list. Surprise, surprise. In that study, I read that Germany had allocated nine billion dollars to hydrogen alone in terms of the green recovery. Is that, is that the sort of dollars that Australia is going to have to lay down in order to make a transition to this new fuel? Well, it's not a new f- fuel, but it's a new, in a mass use fuel. What are we looking at there in terms of creating a hydrogen industry? Well, I mean, I, it does have enormous potential. It's not there yet in a commercial sense, but I think it's got enormous potential. Germany is very different to Australia in terms of, you know, the size of their economy and mm. the nature of their sure. economy. So I wouldn't put us quite in, in that sort of same category. Uh, having said that, you know, Germany's made it very clear they see Australia as a potential key partner in the development of hydrogen. I've met with the German ambassador who's made that point to me. Mm. They're going to need to import the renewable energy through hydrogen. So I see hydrogen as a key, it's a storage mechanism. It's also a very flexible storage mechanism for export. So if you take the Asian Renewable Energy Hub, which is a proposal for up in the Pilbara, very exciting proposal, I must say, where there's, they're proposing 100% renewable wind and solar converted into hydrogen and then exported to Asia on ships. Exported as ammonia or exported uh, well, as hydrogen as, well, in temperature control or whatever? Uh, hi- I'm going full nerd here, yeah, you but, are. you know, whatever. Anyway, uh, yes, I, sorry. Hi- anyway, okay. Hydrogen in this case is my recollection on ships. Now, yeah. that's an enormous opportunity. There's, Australia is an exporter of sources of energy, you know, through our, uh, mm. our resources, and we can continue to be. But we need to find the mechanisms to do it because it's very different to exporting coal and, and natural gas, although actually exporting natural gas and hydrogen yeah. is not dissimilar technology. Yes, very, very similar, actually, yes. Yeah, and so yeah. you can do it through like this. this I've talk, spoken about the Asian Energy Renewable Energy Hub. The other proposal, big one, is the Sun Cable in the Northern Territory, which is proposing mm. a pipeline mm. to Singapore of renewable energy. So that's another export mechanism. So all these are massive opportunities, I think, for Australia. And again, brings me back to that point. We must see uh, this as an economic imperative. Yes, you, I, and I dare say most of our listeners think that dealing with climate change is a moral imperative. Get that, agree with that. But I would argue winning the moral argument for action on climate change is one thing. 
What we haven't done mm. is won the economic argument for policy action on climate change, and that's what we have to do, including where it's hardest. I've been, last month I was in Gladstone and, and Emerald and Biloela, and by the time this podcast goes to air, I will be on my way back from Gladstone again. For example, this argument, we have to bring people with us as we make these arguments and explore these opportunities. Um, it's not just mm. about going and talking, it's also about listening. And, you know, in my experience, people are up for that conversation. You know, I went to the Calide power station in uh, Biloela, it's a coal-fired power station. It's a big, you know, it's everything that you see on TV, a coal-fired power stations, they've got it all. Met with many of the workers there, a good chat. Not one said to me, how do we keep this place open, you know, beyond its natural life? What they did say mm-hmm. to me is, we really want to know what's next for us and our kids, you know, and what's, what's, where's the energy going to be generated? And they get that the regions which have powered Australia through cheap, reliable energy coal and gas, are exactly the same regions which can power Australia through renewable energy because they've got the access to the ports, the pipelines, the railway lines Mm. and the purpose-built roads. They've got the space which you need for big solar and wind generation and they're well placed and you know people say oh there's not many jobs in solar and wind. Okay it's a different, it is a different undertaking but as you convert it to uh, hydrogen and ammonia or steam, as is being proposed in many places. There's another proposal I've spoken about too. There's another. There's another. Uh, people are working on a, a very large renewable energy project for Mount Isa, for example, which mm. will convert it into storage as well. So whether it's central and north Queensland, whether it's the Illawarra, the Hunter, the Latrobe Valley, Collie Bunbury, you know, Portland, wherever it is, these are the same areas which will drive Australia's energy future. And have we won the policy debate for climate change action in those areas? No. Can we? Yes. Will we? We have to. Do you think you can... I'm glad you've raised that because I was going to ask you, you know, what, what you'd... Um what you'd learned, which is a stupid sort of mildly fatuous question, but uh, but nonetheless in, in your context an interesting one given that you've just taken on the portfolio and you've just racked up your first several months in it. And because the, the sort of the critical thing, is it not, is that uh, is what you've just said. Labor's not won the climate cha- action arguments in those parts of the country. And there, there, there are reasons, partly because this whole area has been weaponised in those regions, yeah. partly because of that, and a lot of lies have been told, which you and I would acknowledge readily. But also, there's got to be an appetite in those regions for the transition that we started this conversation with and is the backdrop to all conversations in this area. Yeah. So do you think that because, I mean, your imperative at the moment is is to design a set of climate and energy policies ahead of the next federal election, which has got some prospect of flying in those parts of the country or at least not radically tanking. Yep. So where do you think you're up to with that? I, I, I agree with the premise of your question. I know we meant to say we disagree with the premise of a journalist's question. I, I agree with the premise of your question that we have work to do. And you're saying are people up for that conversation? In my experience, yes. Mm. I mean, you know, I, I met, for example, with all the mayors of central Queensland through the Bowen Basin and, and elsewhere through their regional organisation of councils. I'm not suggesting to you that, you know, the vast majority of them are, are socialists or, uh, or, or Labor voters, 
their representative of their communities, they 100% get it. They were very keen to talk to me about opportunities into the future for their areas, for their communities, for uh, their councils and the communities they represent. They understand the opportunities and they get it. They know it's not going to happen overnight. And they know that if we don't make those policy changes, their communities run a real risk of being left behind and being, frankly, decimated. You know, the policy decisions we make here in Australia are very important, but so are the policy decisions taken in the rest of the world, which impact on Australia. 70% of our trading partners are moving to net zero by 2050, including big recipients of our energy exports. We can pretend to people that's not going to have an impact on Australia and on Australians. It would be a lie. It can be pretended. The Liberals pretend it won't have an impact. So we can say to these communities, look, we're going to have policy changes in Australia, but guess what? Policy changes are occurring, whether we like it or not, around the world. So we need to get together with you and engage with you now about how we deal with that because the global economy is changing in a more radical and fundamental way than any at any time since the Industrial Revolution. I mean, I don't, you know, I think, you know, Catherine, I'm not generally into hyperbole, but this is the biggest transformation in the economy since the Industrial Revolution. Now, there were people who pretended the Industrial Revolution could be ignored and they would have no impact on workers. They weren't proven right by history. And anybody, whether it's Matt Canavan or, or, you know, Keith Pitt or anybody else who goes around Queensland and says, ah, you know, climate change, you know, it's all going to come and take your job, we can just basically ignore it. They are being fundamentally dishonest. So it is important, the right thing to do on every level to engage with communities and individuals about this in affected areas, to talk to them about the challenges and the opportunities and to do so. And I find people are up for that conversation. What they're not up for, to be frank, is to be, you know, on the other side of the equation. I've given Keith Pitt and Matt Canavan a free character assessment, but I'll do the same on the other side. Also, what they're not up for is a convoy of, you know, southern state people swanning into their community in the weeks in the lead up to an election and lecturing them on the morality of climate change. They're not up for that. And they're right not to be up for that. They want to be part of the conversation and not be lectured to. But is the, the really difficult conundrum to fix, though, isn't it, is if these communities are in transition and they are open to the conversation about what opportunities this transition presents, which is your feedback, right, having been to a number of these regions since taking this portfolio and, and that they get it, I, I, I can perfectly understand that they would get it. They're at the front end of it and, and people in disrupted industries generally understand more than others exactly what that means, right? Yeah. But there's also, you've said to me in this conversation too, that like obviously Labor has a policy commitment to hit net zero by mid-century and we can't start making that transition in 2048. We can't do that. So the sort of, the kind of, the conundrum to solve is how fast the transition can play out and still be politically palatable, if we're being frank, right? If we're being absolutely frank. Yes and no, yes, uh, yes, but plus. Well, you tell, you tell me. You've been there. You tell me. But y- yes, but plus. Also, plus, how are you going to ensure that that transition creates jobs in the regions? Yes. How are you going to ensure yes. that that transition provides for energy costs which are competitive to fire manufacturing, you know, importantly, how are you going to ensure that 
Australia gets a slice of the action in the manufacturing of those renewables. All, all that is part of the conversation. So, yeah, I mean, it has been. I think how you've described the climate debate is, frankly, an accurate historical assessment of how it's gone in the last few elections. But I think, mm. frankly, um, I think we in the Labor Party uh, know we have to change that paradigm. We, mm. have to ch- we have to create the weather, if you like, the political weather, to say, actually, it's not just an argument about how quickly, and we can't accept your, your question about how quickly, to some degree, and I'm not being critical of you, but to some degree is an acceptance of the premise that climate change action comes at an economic cost uh, mm. and, a, and a cost of jobs. Well, I don't accept that premise because I see it as an economic opportunity and a job creation opportunity. Uh, will jobs mm. be impacted and, you know, when coal-fired power stations close because they reach the end of their natural life, are people going to be impacted by that? Yes. In my experience, people have an emotional attachment to having a job and an emotional attachment to their kids having the chance of a job. They know that it's not necessarily going to be exactly the same job they're doing today. I mean, these are smart people. And, you know, they've been impacted by the coal price going up and down over the years and, you know, the vagaries of the re- of, of the resources sector. And they've been laid off before for reasons which have got absolutely nothing to do with climate change. They know that automation is going to have an impact on them and their jobs, particularly in mining itself. You know, these economic changes has happened, will happen. Mm. We can manage it or we can pretend it's not happening. Now, frankly, at the moment, no, no. as a country, the government is pretending it's not happening. No, 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 that's, absolute, I, I, that's absolutely right. And you're right, the way to win the argument is to change the dynamic in the conversation, which is that climate change is inevitably about cost and there's no benefit, right? Yeah. And what you're trying to present accurately, in my view, is, is the opportunity questions associated with the transition, which the government deliberately minimises, right? So yeah. you and I have no argument on that score. But what is what you cannot argue with in, if you accept the science, if you accept the science of climate change, we cannot do the hockey stick. We cannot just sit around waiting in order to make this transition until later in the mid-century equation. Yes. Right? We have to do it. We have to. This is what we've already actually, forgive me getting to quote a a financial tabloid, angry, but (laughs) this, no, this is infuriating. Like this, this, this decade that we've just squandered was actually the critical decade for this transition, for this transition. And we've just blown it. We have absolutely blown it. So we cannot blow the next decade. We We have to move. It's not a question of, Every child gets a prize. It can't be. There's a transition that's going to happen. You would hope that a Labor government would seek to look after people in a transition and create opportunities for them. That's what you would hope, right? But the transition has to happen. It has to start. We can't have a seminar about it. So then... I was, there's a point to my rave, Chris. I'll, br- I'll bring you back to the first conversation you and I had after you took this portfolio where you said basically the frame for this is like an emissions and jobs compact or some sort of idea that brings those two things together. Where are you up to with that in yep. terms of how you think about that, how you frame that? I, I agree with basically everything you just said with a slight caveat that you said, oh, yeah, you'd hope that the Labor Party looks after people on the way through. I'd put it much higher than that. Not that we just, you know, look after people on the way through as some sort of footnote to say, yeah, we're going to do all this and by the way, you'll be okay. The workers impacted and the communities impacted 
must, in my view, be at the centre of the policy, not just looked after at the end. Add-ons afterwards, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. At the centrepiece of your plan has to be, okay, and here's how here's how we're going to create jobs and, and reinvigorate regional communities, etc. It's not different what you said, but it's a difference of emphasis. Now, yes, the first the, in the um, interview that you and I conducted, I think, you know, maybe a day after I became climate change shadow or two days, you put to me new new green deal. I think was the term you put to me, and I and I yeah, say the that's same, where we started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I say the same thing to you as I I did then. People will have their own terminologies. You know, new green deal is. I think the term actually originated in Europe, but it's got an American ring because it's reminiscent of FDR, right? In Australia, yeah. the term accord traditionally has been used, and I did use with you the term, you know, jobs and emissions accord. Mm. Compact is a term I've used previously as well. All these terms are really saying similar things, and I don't get hung up. And people can sort of... So the Green New Deal means that you you might be sort of seeing as agreeing with absolutely everything that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says or something, for example. That's not what I'm saying, but I am saying the principle of an understanding that we are only going to act in, in on climate change in concert with communities and workers who are affected and their futures uh, will be at the centrepiece of our policy is a correct one. You know, and one of the things I do is, you know, I always have, I always think, I, I, yes, I go to regional Australia and regional Queensland. I also have done forums in, you know, inner city Melbourne and and, you know, in a Canberra and, and, and all those places. And I say the same thing. And obviously you get a different set of questions. But, you know, when I get questions about the impact of, you know, why do we, there's my words, not them, but, you know, why do we care about the workers, you know, in Queensland? We should just get on with good policy and the rest will sort itself out. And I say with response to them, to them with respect, those questions I get in forum, in fora, well, you say climate change is an existential threat. And I agree with you. But if a worker in a regional community sees losing their job as a more direct existential threat, they, they accept that climate change is an existential threat. They're not climate change mm. deniers. They accept that that's an existential mm. threat, but losing their job is a more direct one. They are right to think that. And that view mm. must be respected because it is a more direct threat to them. And they are the ones you know, with more to lose than anybody because they are, you know, potentially losing their job and and having all the environmental impacts as well. So you've got to bring those people with you on in the conversation, not only for, you know, yes, partisan political reasons, yes, but also because it's the right thing to do. They must be at the centre of the policy development. But people in this in this situation, in my, you know, strongly, you can't, you know, this is a generalisation, but we are not talking about people who deny the science of climate change. We are people who, we are talking about people who have legitimate and genuine concerns about how climate policy impacts on them and their families and their futures. And um, if we think we can just sort of, you know, dictate policy without taking that into account, then I respectfully differ. Mm. But then how do you, uh, and we, we best end here in typical you and me fashion, we could go on for about three hours, but we really can't. So, but where, like, bring people with with you. Work has got to be in the centre of the policy. All of, like, I hear all those concepts and I understand exactly what you mean, but how remains the question. How? Yeah. If you've got to move, if the transition's got to yeah. happen because the science says it does, like we can't pretend that we can just fudge it. it, it does have to happen. So how do you bring people with you? How do you do it? 
Catherine, what's by getting the, the policy... What's the accord? Well, perhaps it, perhaps it comes back to where we started, you know, the mechanisms which then ensure that not only when we go to regional Queensland or anywhere else impacted, are we using the right rhetoric, we're actually referring to the right substance, which is, hey, you know, here's a policy, for example, which will facilitate the framework, which will facilitate investment in hydrogen, which will create X thousand jobs. Now, more and more, that is becoming more realistic. You know, we had, we, we, we've said that in the past, but it's been, you know, a long way into the future and a little bit nebulous for people. More and more, it's becoming more tangible uh, and more real, and, and it's starting to happen, not just in hydrogen, but, you know, people are seeing, you know, this occur already. So it's becoming, uh, I wouldn't say easier, but it's becoming more, more tangible to communicate. Mm. To your question, you're right. I'm not just talking about, let me be very, very clear when I talk about workers at the centre um, and a change of the frame of debate. I'm not just talking about presentation. I am talking about how the policy is constructed and how it is formulated so that it's not just to go back to what I said before, it's not just, oh, here's a really top-notch climate change policy and, by the way, we're going to look after workers who are impacted by that, by retraining or what have you. No, here is a very good holistic economic investment and jobs policy which deals with climate change as well. Mm. Well, I guess watch this space. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate chewing the fat and obviously we will continue to keep you guys, listeners, up to date with Labor's, well, journey. <laughs> it's always, uh, yeah, that's right. It's always fun to chat, Catherine. Oh, uh, and this has been no exception. It's a journey. <laughs> and, we're, and, we're, and we're still on it. Anyway, thank you, Chris. I do appreciate it, obviously. Thank you. Uh, thank you to Miles Martignoni, who's the EP of the show. Thank you to the lovely Hannah, who is listening in and who will doubtless cut our words into something splendid. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, all the, all the usual business. We'll see you next week.